from the former Chief Justice on down, <laughs> uh, there is a recognition of access to justice in Canada in a state of crisis. And that's because most people are representing themselves and cannot get lawyers. The NSRLP is a sort of oasis in the desert and a place where tailored resources and information can be found, not to mention that important sense of belonging at a time when most SRLs feel they don't belong anywhere. Hello and welcome once again to Jumping Off the Ivory Tower with Prof. Julie Mack. My name is Dana Cornwall and I'm the Project Manager at the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. And I'm Julie McFarlane, the founder of the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. And this week, uh, we have an exciting conversation uh, with our new executive director of NSRLP. Jennifer Leach has joined us as executive director, and we are very, very happy and pleased. But we wanted to take this opportunity to introduce Jennifer more length to everybody uh, so you can hear some of what she, um, what brought her to NSRLP and what some of her personal goals are for the organization. So I'm just going to reiterate what we now have up on our website, which is that Jennifer's background is as a commercial litigator at Goodman's, which is uh, one of the, the big firms in Toronto. And that is a very different world from the world of self-represented litigants, but Towards the end of her time there, Jennifer found herself questioning what she was doing and being drawn increasingly to think about how to uh, work with people who couldn't afford lawyers. And she began by volunteering with Pro Bono Ontario, which has been part of her ongoing experience and which certainly sort of pushed her towards the work that she then did in her doctoral thesis to research the experiences of self-reps. And we are just thrilled to have Jennifer on board now. Uh, And she's been with us, I think. By the time the podcast goes out, it'll be about six weeks. I'm really excited for you to hear this conversation because all of our really kind and supportive followers who have been following NSRLP, some of you, since the beginning, since the early days even of of Julie's original stuff. Nine years, it's just crazy. So we have such a wonderful kind of fan base, I guess, of really supported community members. And I'm so excited for you to hear this conversation because I think it will really bring home to you how good a fit Jennifer is for this next phase of the organization. Myself, and I can speak on behalf of, I know our other project manager, Moya McAllister, and all of our law student research assistants, we're all really, really happy with with this choice. Jennifer is just a great fit, as I said, and you'll hear that in her great conversation with Julie, two heavy hitters. It's so exciting to hear them talk about all this good stuff. But just briefly, one of the things that, that hit me about this conversation, one of the things that Jennifer was talking about was the idea of having the public meaningfully meaningfully participate in the legal system which they largely (laughs) do not at this point but the goal being meaningful participation of the public in the legal system is not as jennifer goes on to say a second best option but something that actually if we look at it correctly and we do it correctly would be a really even better thing for the justice system because it would mean we would have 
a much healthier democracy with a lot more public participation in the system. And I thought that was such a great idea. And I think it's a really nice way to sum up Jennifer's kind of um, big picture thinking on the issue of access to justice. And, and dovetails perfectly with what we've been trying to do at NSRLP to bring mm -hmm. self-reps into the consultation process to look at changes mm -hmm. and reforms in the legal system. But I think that you will hear from this conversation that Jennifer is absolutely convinced, as, as you say, Dana, to sort of expanding the, the, the democratic experience. And that yeah. can also be through participation in the legal system. So what we decided we would do as a little bit of a, a, an additional intro today was we uh, recruited three uh, self-represented litigants, um, two members actually of our advisory board, Jeff Rose Martland and Jennifer Muller, and Karen Turkington, who was a student on the online school um, that's been running and Dana's been managing for the last uh, semester. And we asked each of them to say a few words about, first of all, why NSROP was important. In other words, why we need to find a new leader to take this forward. Secondly, what qualities they thought that that leader needed to have. And thirdly, what challenges they expected them to face. So we're going to play those clips first of all, and then we're going to go straight into my conversation with Jennifer. And just to be clear, I'm not vanishing. I am staying on the advisory board. I talk with the team on a regular basis still. And I think everybody knows that this has been a real passion project for me. I have my work cut out in other areas now, but I remain 100% committed and involved at NSRLP. So let's listen to the self-reps first. My name is Karen Turkington. Having had the opportunity to participate in two interviews conducted by law students at the end of 2021, demonstrated to me the commitment that NSRLP has in taking concrete steps to broaden the education of newly graduating law students. Then being offered the opportunity to attend the first ever online course in the School for Family Litigants earlier this year, I was so eager to begin, and now I'm grateful to have learned so much and heard from so many legal professionals and former self-represented litigants. I felt a kinship with the other students just knowing that I was in the company of others who have confronted a very daunting legal system each in their own way. In my opinion, the kind of leader an SRL advocacy and support organization needs is someone who has a foundation in law, of course academic research and some hands-on experience with people who've had to resort to self-representation. Essential personal qualities would include an ability to hear the person underneath the SRL label. By this I mean a willingness to suspend judgment, listen to, and acknowledge the tremendous challenge being undertaken by a novice. I think the greatest challenge may come from the old guard in the mainstream legal system itself. However, as Jennifer so eloquently stated in the NRSLP blog, she, quote, marries academic research, volunteer experience, and practical work in a way that both assists those representing themselves in the civil justice system and provides a means to advocate for a more just and inclusive system. 
My name is Jennifer Muller, and I'm very proud to have been a member of the NSRLP Advisory Board since its inception in 2013. The NSRLP is important because there really isn't any other organization that is solely in place to support people who are in the difficult and challenging position of representing themselves in court. Very few people choose to be in the position of representing themselves, and it is extremely stressful and traumatic for many people. The NSRLP is a sort of oasis in the desert and a place where tailored resources and information can be found, not to mention that important sense of belonging at a time when most SRLs feel they don't belong anywhere. The qualities needed to do this job are excellent communication skills and the ability to see issues from all sides of the table because of the diversity of the players within the system and, of course, the dire needs of all who are shut out of accessing the system. Patience and empathy are close behind because change can be painfully hard and slow. I think the biggest challenge of this job is to recognize and maintain the balance between the insiders and outsiders related to the justice system. That is to be able to work with those individuals that are a formal part of the system who share some of the ability to make decisions about the justice system like government and the judiciary without alienating them and yet at the same time advocating for and amplifying the needs of ordinary Canadians who have the right to a justice system that is both accessible and functional. This is a tall order to hold that balance for sure. My name is Jeff Rose Martland. I'm a self-represented litigant and I serve on the advisory board of the NSROP. The NSROP is important in giving self-reps the feeling that they're not alone and they do have a place within the justice system. And I'm happy to serve on the board and work towards finding solutions for self-reps and to work on access to justice. What qualities would a leader of our organization need? Well, they need determination, outspokenness, and a commitment to finding solutions. And the challenges that they're likely to face? Well, they'll face pushback from the legal community who often think that self-reps should just go away. They're also going to have to deal with cynical and disillusioned self-represented litigants who uh, also feel like they should just go away and they don't have a part in the legal process. And the most challenging thing, I think, will be mediating between these different factions to try and find workable solutions. Welcome, Jennifer. So Jennifer, let me start with the question that in many ways I am the most curious about your answer to. And I think maybe many other people who've learned something about your background in the last couple of weeks will be too. It's a long journey from Goodman's. Yes. <laughs> commercial litigators to being the director of the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. And obviously this didn't happen overnight, but I think that a lot of people are going to be interested in hearing why someone who was obviously succeeding very well as a commercial litigator, working with corporations and institutions, and probably, you know, doing quite well financially, would yes. change direction after <laughs> nine years and say, I want to get involved in access to justice now. So tell me about that. Sure. I mean, obviously, it's if there's never sort of one short answer, there's a few different considerations. One 
sort of family related that that I wanted to sort of step away from some of the piece of practice that we are familiar with and spend time with my very young twins, but two other pieces that are really significant and one is related to practice and the other is kind of related to my family roots. I grew up in a house where we were really imparted with the understanding that we were lucky to have what we had. Um, We went to a very small independent school and we were raised in a family that talked about your contributions back and to the idea of actually making the world a better place. And I've lived in, you know, watching my father do exactly that. He took that to heart in terms of his career and worked to to build uh, accessibility for disabled students at university. So I think I've always had that piece uh, inside me (laughs) that I felt that obligation and responsibility and then while at Goodman's, I, I personally, I loved the law. I loved practice. I had a great group that I worked with. So this wasn't because you'd fallen out of love with practicing law? No, no. Uh, obviously, there are some aspects of practice that I think every lawyer can identify are, you know, not the most exciting pieces. But overall, I really loved uh, being a lawyer. But I was looking for two things. One is that responsibility obligation and being able to contribute in a way that assisted people that weren't able to access services at Goodman's. And also- We should just be clear for the listeners, is a firm that would not have a lot of personal clients and certainly not other than extremely wealthy personal clients. Right. Yeah, so it's a corporate, predominantly corporate, uh, large firm on Bay Street. And uh, so many of the clients are corporate based, even on the litigation side. And so no, not a lot of individuals, not a lot. Um, and, and the individuals who are there can afford those legal services, which are significant. Um, my time at there, I worked with one family, actually, who I was acting pro bono for, and they had lost, they had a dispute with their landlord, and the landlord had locked them out. You know, it, those types of cases hit home with how absolutely tragic it is when people don't have a lawyer to sort right. of advocate on their behalf. And, and so, I'm glad that Goodman's was, was uh, you know, giving you space to do some pro bono work. But yeah. as, as we know, that's not going to solve the problem here. So no. that was part no. of your realization that you wanted something different, I think you're saying. Definitely. And that was combined with really my other practical experience being that I was often in court, uh, different courts around the the province actually from New Market to Guelph to downtown Toronto and really seeing firsthand examples of individuals coming into court and trying to represent themselves. And I used to think, you know, as a senior associate who, who knew the ropes, <laughs> how absolutely difficult that would be because I could put, put myself back in the place of a first year mm-hmm. and walking into court with the training of law school behind me and still and still it's hard enough and still being really kind of shaken by sort mm-hmm. of not knowing the process so those kinds of considerations uh, all came together and I also spent time volunteering at Law Help Ontario those considerations kind of drove me a little bit to Law Help and from Law Help I, law help was really the, not really the 
the kernel of my PhD research, but it, it provided a good lens through which to look at a particular issue of access. Right. Well, let, let's talk a bit more about, about your PhD because what you did obviously was decide you wanted to do something different, but also decide, and I'm going to go back and get some more school and thinking time <laughs> before I start this, which I think is, is really impressive too. And We'll obviously be putting some more details up on the podcast page, but you wrote your PhD uh, about the experiences of self-represented litigants with the justice system. And I know, you know, having having read it, that you've collected data in a lot of different ways. But, you know, could you crystallize for us perhaps some of the things that you learned specifically from the self-reps who were accessing those self-help facilities and, and what you learned and maybe what surprised you that you learned? There's lots that surprised me. I think when I went into it, I was looking at self-help in particular as a means of facilitating participation. What I came to sort of realize and what sort of framed my PhD thesis was the notion of empowerment and disempowerment working almost side by side. So even within a particular self-rep experience, there could be aspects that were both empowering and disempowering. Right, yes. So a few things that I, that what I take away on a much higher level than that is one, obviously levels of great frustration. Yeah. With process, with lack of knowledge, with treatment. Um, by various elements of access in the system. Yep. And that was really hard to hear. People had a lot of frustration. And so that was sort of what really highlighted that was what it was countered with, which is this idea that they were working extremely hard to figure it out. So they were working really hard to figure it out and yet feeling all this frustration about the process. So I thought that was really significant. And it, it for me, also helped to change, not that I had an idea of who the self-rep was before I went in, but to really kind of um, broaden my understanding of who self-reps were and why they were there. Um, and there were all kinds of people that really just didn't have any other choice but to represent themselves. And they had education and they had jobs and they had families. And this is just something that they had to do. And it was, um, they were learning lots. <laughs> Often they would say to me, I've learned all kinds of things, but it was always countered with this very significant sense of frustration yes absolutely and you know it's so interesting what you said is about how hard people work yeah. and that was one of the things that you was surprising to you I remember when we put all the transcripts from the the hundreds of interviews that I did in for the original 2013 study together one of the things that we you can do these days, of course, with software is you can search for the most frequent word, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, and obviously you exclude words like the and and. One yeah. of the most frequently used words in those interviews, in those hundreds of interviews, was trying. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Trying to figure it out, trying to teach myself, trying to file, trying to write a statement of claim. I mean, the word trying... Yeah. came up over and over and over again. And I think that speaks to what you've just said, Jennifer, which is that the amount of effort that gets put into this is painful to see because it is so hard for people and they are still often treated as if 
they don't know anything, even when they, they don't know anything and they're just, you know, this is their fun thing to do, etc. Yes. And the piece that also went hand in hand with that for me, uh, for a lot of the people that I spoke with is this idea that they had a lot of faith in the process despite the levels of frustration that they might exhibit or or feel and despite the fact that they felt that they were always running to catch up in any given situation whether it was a court appearance or speaking to opposing counsel or trying to draft something they they maintained uh, this commitment to if I do this and people hear me it'll work out it will we will have a fair outcome it, that's a little bit heartbreaking um, it is it's hard I mean I I heard it too and it it kind of astonishes me yeah but what I also worry about is that people are starting to lose that faith because yeah. a lot of those people talk about how they began with faith which yeah. is the conventional approach you know historically <laughs> people have believed in the institutions of law but they've ended in a different place yeah and I think in part, one of the things that I noticed in some of the interviews I did is that was in part also because the way in which they were treated by various elements within the um, civil justice system. So one of the one of the positive things that people would often say is, you know, I, I felt that I was heard. I felt that they respected my dignity and they they, they saw me as a, a serious person in their court. And of course, the exact opposite is also true. A loss of, of faith when they weren't treated with respect and where they weren't treated with dignity. Um, and that really being also quite crushing that, yeah. you know, that was taking away their faith in yeah. the administration of justice. Yeah. And, and I mean, that, what's ironic about that is that those are the things that ought to be easy to fix. I mean, a lot yeah. of this is not yeah. easy to fix, but just yeah. being treated with respect ought to be easy to fix. Yeah. So, so, so let me kind of continue on this theme to ask you about something else that I know was central to your arguments and your conclusions in your doctoral work, um, and which is an extremely topical issue, which is how far can all of this be solved by, you know, just in inverted commas, getting everybody a lawyer, which is what I think a lot of conventional thinking is. It's the philosophy of the idea yes. that it's lawyers representing people that solves the problem, whereas the self-help program and what you talk about in your PhD is that you could see this as a kind of natural outgrowth of meaningful citizen participation. And if we had a different kind of system, but also crucially, if we treated people doing yeah. this differently, yeah. we put more resources into public legal education and so forth. Now, this is very topical right now in Canada because we've seen um, a real change in the way that BC legal aid is structuring itself. It's moving away from that public education model um, that work has been done for and putting money into the lawyer representation model. And obviously it's a challenge when you've got to make choices, but that seems to me to signal a lack of, of yeah. recognition that meaningful participation may be the way we have to go here. Right, and, and quite frankly, uh, not a bad way to go because meaningful participation by citizenship 
it we would say is reflective of a sort of thriving democracy, right? Yes. Like, I mean, this is not, this is like this, you know, we could flip the thinking on this and say, this isn't like, oh, a, a second best. This is actually a good way uh, of proceeding. And it's no threat to the legal profession. There's there's more than enough work to go around. Uh, and these people can't afford to be your clients anyway. And they can't afford to be your client. A different way of thinking and a different way of thinking is engaging with meaningful participation. And I'm not saying that that's going to turn court cases into fun <laughs> processes. They're still hard and challenging and difficult for people to go through, but they can do it in a way that doesn't sort of you know, crush souls and, and cause people to lose faith in the system and, and produce fair outcomes. And, you know, I think we're seeing with our self-represented litigants online school initiative at the NSROP, uh, you know, we're seeing for the very first time what would have been considered to be radical yeah. five years ago, which is we're actually equipping people with some kinds of skills and tools. Now, having said that, and I and I know that, you know, you, you recognize the, the shortcomings of this as well, there are always going to be people who will say, you know, or who cannot for all yeah. kinds of different reasons, yeah. I can't do this. This is overwhelming for me. You know, I'm not working in my first language. I don't have the tools. I don't have the support. Uh, I need someone else to be my voice. So, you know, what kinds of solutions do you think there are out there um, that would both increase people's meaningful participation, but also take account of the folks who are going to need a bit more assistance? Well, there's, I think there's a few different ways to think about it. So one is, yes, there's absolutely no question that we have different people with different needs. And that, that needs to be built into whatever type of sort of reform we think about. We need, obviously, to think about the adversarial process as it's presently constituted, because quite frankly, it's set up for lawyers. Yes. Uh, it's not set up for people to represent themselves, and it needs, and it ought to be, because that's the new reality. Um, but I also think, so multiple ways of assisting people, multiple ways in which you can facilitate their participation, like everything else, there's not one answer mm -hmm. to a very complicated um, problem. But I also look sometimes, I use the example of the medical system because we don't have, we, you know, we have different people within the medical system doing different things for a patient. Uh, they're not so all surgeons. They're not all surgeons. There's nurses and technicians yeah. and orderlies and doctors and residents and different pieces of the sort of patient's needs are met by different persons. And I don't see why we can't think a little bit more like that in law. There's some things that people, even within a particular person's case, there might be things that they can do there might be things they can't do. So let's think about that. Let's figure out what people can do easily on their own if we kind of reform it and make it more accessible. And what are those things that no, you could still bring in uh, lawyers or so in terms of process, in terms of type of individual, in terms of type of case. Right. And what do people most need help with still? What do they most need help with in a particular situation? I think the overarching consideration would be open-minded to the um, prospect of, of a variety of 
of solutions to the to problems and a number of different people who would undertake those different roles yeah 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 i mean i don't know very much about the history um of the medical system but um i have a bit of a sense that there was a lot of blood spilt about the development of these different roles too and we're certainly seeing that in the legal profession and let's yeah. just hope that the blood spilling will lead us to um a lot more different roles in the same way as the medical system has and yet now we would say there's lots of doctors that would be you know adamant defenders of exactly. our system in canada and say this is you know we we do something really kind of special here and and now we can see that there would be lots within the medical profession that they may although they may say there are issues with the delivery certainly the system itself is a positive thing yeah so I can't of course end this conversation without talking to you more explicitly about NSRLP and I and I do want to be really clear to everybody uh, in this podcast I am absolutely thrilled that you are taking over as executive director. I think that you are going to do an absolutely fantastic job. We've done a lot of, I think, good work in the last nine years. And I think we should be very proud of how the whole team has helped to raise the voices of self-represented litigants in Canada. But, you know, there are always next steps and next stages. And National Self-Represented Litigants Project has to continue to evolve and to adapt to changes and to needs. So what do you see as your most important goals at this point entering in? And I know you've only been in this seat for a couple of weeks, so it's an unfair <laughs> question, but what do you see as the most important goals and what do you expect to be your biggest challenges? So I, I mean, I think there's, like everything else, there's not one single big challenge and not one single big goal. I think that um, the project under your direction has done an excellent job at sort of raising the awareness of self-representation um, as a sort of fundamental issue in, in our civil justice system. Um, and I think it's on people's radar, but I think uh, now is also the time to say, okay, you know the problem is there, you know it exists, what are we going to do about it? How are we going to assist people? How are we going to reform? How are we going to move forward? So there is obviously resistance within certain elements of either the civil justice system or say profession, etc. That needs to be confronted and needs to be encouraged to accept responsibility for the changes that we need to make. That's a really significant piece, I think. Um, and yeah, this genie's not going back in the bottle anytime soon. No, it's not. And let's just stop saying that it might because mm. it's not going to. And from the former chief justice on down, <laughs> uh, there is a recognition of access to justice in Canada in a state of crisis. And that's because most people are representing themselves and cannot get lawyers. Jennifer, I really appreciate you taking the time to have this conversation with me. And I'm very excited to see what happens next at NSRLP. But thank you very much for the opportunity to introduce you. to oh, well, Thank today. you for having me. Welcome back to In Other News. My name is Shannon Meikle, and I'll be your news correspondent for this episode of Jumping Off the Ivory Tower. For listeners who aren't familiar, 
This segment recaps access to justice news from the last few weeks. This episode, we'll be talking about a discussion piece that calls for the Law Society of Ontario to be dissolved or reformed. Next, we'll be talking about a new piece of legislation in the Yukon that aims to improve child welfare. Finally, we'll discuss how the Government of Canada and the Provincial Government of Manitoba have shared that making family law resources available in both official languages is a priority. First up is a recent article published in the Toronto Sun that calls for the LSO to be held publicly accountable for its actions, even if that means its dissolution or reform. For those who aren't familiar with the LSO, it's the regulatory body in Ontario that's responsible for licensing and regulating lawyers and paralegals. One of their mandates is to facilitate access to justice. However, recent decisions by the LSO have had people question whether they're actually acting in pursuit of this interest. For example, in 2017, the LSO ignored the recommendations of an inquest conducted by a judge that they had commissioned by proposing that the role of paralegals in family law be limited. In 2022, when it came time to vote on this issue, they backed down and said that more research was needed, even though more than four years had passed since the action was first proposed. The LSO's willingness to ignore or even go against good evidence that says that paralegals are an important access to justice tool for litigants who can't afford lawyers seems to go against their mandate to promote access to justice. Currently, the LSO isn't held publicly accountable to anyone since they're the highest regulatory body for legal matters in Ontario. According to Marshall Yarmus for the Toronto Sun, this may be good grounds for the LSO's disillusion or at least its reform. Our second piece of news is that the Act to Amend the Child and Family Services Act was just passed in the Yukon. This act is designed to address the overrepresentation of Indigenous children in the welfare system there and to improve the outcomes for youths and families involved in the system overall. The Act requires those managing welfare cases to coordinate with Indigenous children's communities and to create collaborative, culturally sensitive care plans for arrangements for the child, which are designed to help the child stay connected to their culture, their language, customs, and their community. The Act will also expand the services available for children and families transitioning out of the system. This is a super positive piece of news. We often think of the law as something that moves very slowly, and it does in many cases. This is a good reminder that meaningful change can happen. Finally, we'll be discussing another piece of good news. The province of Manitoba has been awarded $1.6 million in funding to implement provisions that make court documents in divorce proceedings available in both official languages. The funds will also be used to make family justice services available in both, language and in both languages and increase the French language capacities of the courts. This is a step towards the justice system becoming fairer and more accessible. That's all for this episode. Thanks for listening and join us next time for another interesting discussion.